Please open your Bibles with me to Acts 4. We're returning to the book of Acts now after being uh, off for Easter for a couple weeks, so hopefully all of the details will come back as we look uh, back in this continuing story. Acts 4, chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For what a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the, nations ra- why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they, had prayed the place, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that, it said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." Lord God, we come to your word this morning and we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things. Would you instruct us? Would you encourage us? Would you do that work that only you can do? Give us ears to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for continuing to stand. It's a long chapter, uh, another long chapter. That's the challenge with these uh, chapters in, in Acts, um, but hopefully you're remembering now the story that we left off with. And these first four verses of chapter four serve as kind of a bridge rather nicely in God's providence that after uh, leaving the text for a couple weeks to look at the triumphal entry and Easter, that now are these four verses that kind of remind us and bridge this, what has just happened and what is about to happen in verse four. Um, remember Peter and John had healed this man who was uh, a crippled, Uh, he was not able to walk, he was most likely, his legs were such that they were deformed so that he, it wasn't a matter of just a muscle deficiency, but there were things that were noticeably wrong, and he had been this way since birth, the text tells us he's over 40 years old, he had been at the temple daily, if you remember, so everybody knew this guy, everyone knew this man, and they knew what was wrong with him. And he is standing before them today as a testimony with Peter and with John. And we see as Peter and John are now explaining the gospel, this large group of temple leaders approaches them. We have the priests and the the elders, we have the Sadducees, and we have the captain of the temple guard. And here we have this beginning of opposition that the church is now going to face. Uh, opposition that Jesus told them would come, opposition that shouldn't have surprised them. And certainly I think this first opposition was probably some that they were ready for, this external opposition, opposition from outside of the body of Christ. And what we'll look at in the coming weeks, unfortunately, is opposition from within the body of Christ. Opposition both in the form of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, and then also the jealousy that we'll see in in chapter 6 that erupted between two different groups. You know, we know there are going to be challenges. Jesus told his disciples that. We look in the New Testament, we see this warning over and over again. I think especially of the, the letter to the Ephesians, where Paul, out of those six chapters, those first three are really a theology of the gospel, and the latter Three chapters are an explanation of how that gospel lives, practical doctrine, how we are to live life. And if you remember at the end of that letter, chapter 6, what does he deal with but spiritual warfare? Put on the full armor of God, he says. Be ready for the attacks of Satan. 
And Peter, in his first letter, writes something similar in terms of the warning. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In commenting on this text that we're looking at today, uh, Derek Thomas uh, writes that these are these three waves of opposition that we'll see in the next coming weeks. But this is what he writes. In every instance of opposition, however, the work is that of Satan, attempting to destroy the kingdom of God. Let me just put in a parenthetical statement here. Satan is a vandal. He's on a leash. He was defeated at the cross. The most that he can do is vandalize God's kingdom. He can't stop it. He can't thwart it. He can't hurt you. He can't do anything but be a vandal and mess things up. And so we know this, and we have great confidence in this, and yet he's a vandal, and he likes to do what he can. Back to what Thomas says, he put a, Satan has a limited but a limited repertoire, and learning his malevolent schemes will enable us to discern his activity in our own time. Satan may employ the emergence of theological error, or sudden fall of a brother or sister into notorious sin, or a distressing case of church bickering. But as serious as all of these are, we are never to lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is in control of His church. We are to remain confident that the spiritual weapons we are to employ in our warfare are able to destroy whatever Satan may put in our path. Take confidence in this. Be on guard, but take confidence in this. The attacks will come. And so here we see the beginning of these attacks. The priests, the Sadducees coming with this captain of the temple guard who was in essence the chief of police at the temple. The Romans had allowed uh, a group of Levites to form this uh, temple guard, this police force. And the captain of the temple was of course the top dog. And you can picture this happening not only are the Sadducees coming because they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And as you may remember, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're annoyed. And the priests are coming because they have a problem with these guys preaching and teaching because they're untrained, they're unskilled, they're common men. So they're annoyed. And now comes the captain of the temple guard. So now it becomes a show of force. There comes authority with this. It's a threat. And the text tells us later that these words were threats to them. Clearly a show of force. Peter and John they saw as common people. They knew that their teacher Jesus was also from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And so they threatened them in this way. Late in the day, they could do nothing at the time, so what did they do? They arrested them, verse 3 tells us, and they put them in jail until the council could meet the next day. And then at the end of this kind of bridge, uh, don't miss verse 4. Even though they were facing spiritual attack, even though Peter and John may felt like, what? We're getting arrested? This is defeat. This is bad. Can anything good from come, can come from be, being arrested? Look at verse 4. Many were added to their number that day, increasing the number from 3,000 now to over 5,000, who heard the word and believed. And then we move into the trial the next day, verses 5. Verse 5 to 22, we see this trial where Peter and John make this bold stand before this 
show of force, these leaders in Jerusalem. In verse 5, they stand before the religious leaders. They're surrounded by these religious leaders. We see the high priest. We see the previous high priest uh, who would still use this title, members of the family. The whole family was there. This was a very powerful family. Uh, the, the high priestly role had been from generation to generation in this family. Think of uh, Kennedy's or the Bushes, you know, lots of people involved and powerful, and they're all up there. And this should have been, it should have been an intimidation to Peter and John. But we actually see just the opposite. In verse 8, we're told that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and what we see follow is a very bold sermon what was supposed to be just an answering of questions, the trial, responding to the questions of his accusers, he actually preaches the gospel. It's a bold sermon. It's a wise sermon in that he turns their question from, why are you, basically, what they're implying, why are you stirring up trouble? He turns that around and says, you know, are you guys so annoyed at us because a man who had been crippled for 40 years was healed? That a good deed was done? We see wisdom in how he responded in verse 9. It's a Christ-centered sermon in which he points out, getting all the attention off himself, pointing to Jesus. By Jesus, this man was healed. healed, rather, And in doing so, he proclaims with great clarity the gospel message in verses 10 to 12. He again points out their responsibility in the unjust death of Jesus, that although God was ruling and allowed this and purposed this, Yet man is still responsible and held accountable for his actions. We saw this in his previous sermon. And he proclaims the resurrection, that Jesus was indeed alive, uh, annoying the Sadducees again. He proclaims that Jesus was the promised one, that he was the Messiah. He did this by calling him the cornerstone that the builders rejected. The Jewish hearers would have heard this and would have understood exactly what he meant because of this Old Testament language and imagery of a cornerstone or a capstone. Now, a cornerstone and a capstone are two different things, but the imagery is similar in that they are critical. The cornerstone is in the foundation, and it shapes the entire building. If the cornerstone is true, the rest of the building will be true. The idea of the capstone, depending on what translation you see, it can be translated both ways. It can also be a capstone, which is the last stone that's placed usually in an archway. And if you know, that's what holds everything together. All of the weight and the force of the arch comes to it. And it must also be true. They knew exactly what Peter was saying when he said, he is the cornerstone of the capstone that the builders rejected. And then, as if to shut down any further speculation about the truth of the gospel, he says in verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The exclusivity of the gospel is crystal clear here. And if you believe this is God's word, and it is, then this statement is true in all its exclusivity. But we live in a world that doesn't like absolutes, doesn't like exclusive statements, We have a world that's elevated a message of tolerance that brings into question any claim to truth. But consider the logic of even that. Even in those who hold up tolerance as the most ideal thing that we can achieve, even that logic becomes intolerant. Because that logic is saying, um, we're tolerant only of other tolerant people but if we consider you're intolerant, then we're no longer tolerant of you. It just becomes another religion. 
It just becomes another perspective, another idea, another man-made thing to say that if you accept all beliefs, then you have to accept everything, and it's absurd. None of us want to live in a world where there isn't truth, where there aren't absolutes. We don't want to go to the heart doctor and hear that everything's clogged, but the doctor says, you know, I think it's just so, you know, old-fashioned to to clear out those clogged lines. Let's just let it ride, you know. Or we go and uh, hear about the bridge being designed, and the, 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 the bridge builder says, you know, I think right angles are so narrow-minded, I'm just going to get creative. You know, we don't want to drive over that bridge either. Truth protects us. Truth guides us. Truth helps us to live fruitful, productive lives, not only in the physical world, but it's true also in spiritual matters as well. And Peter makes this crystal clear. And it's so clear, verse 13 tells us, that the leaders are astonished. They're surprised. These are just common folk, they say. Common men. Untrained men. And on top of that, their teacher, their leader, wasn't also from Nazareth. He was untrained. He didn't go to school. And they look and listen in amazement and consider who these men are, or rather who they aren't, except for the fact that the validation is standing right there in front of them with Peter and John. You see, their validation wasn't in their education, their pedigree, their money, their status in society. The validation was standing in front of them, a man who for 40 years was crippled and now could stand on his own and indeed run, walk, leap, and praise God because that's what they had seen. Again, let me remind you, this man was not a stranger to them. He had been there every day, the text says, every day asking for alms in the temple. They knew who this man was. They had seen that he could not walk. And they're looking in amazement on what has happened. And they can't argue, they can't forget what has happened because he's standing right there in front of them. Now they still don't want to acknowledge that it's a miracle. If you look at their wording, notice in verse 16 they call this a notable sign. Does this remind us of our our current media? (laughs) How they, they, they remove all meaning to words and just kind of vacate phrases and so forth to, to try and uh, uh, create some kind of story. Even back in verse 7, they said, how did they do this? Again, they won't call it a miracle. They won't say what's actually happened. You know, so many people claim that they don't believe because they've never seen something supernatural, that they've never seen a miracle. You've probably interacted with people who have said, well, if I just saw a miracle, I would believe. You know, the whole notion when you go off to college is that everything is according to science, that everything is based on empirical evidence. And our young people are being swept away because they don't consider the fact that just because people claim everything is empirical, that everything can be seen and proven in a lab doesn't mean that it has been. And so people will say things like, well, you know, if if I could go in the lab and just see God, then I would know that he existed. I would believe. And yet, what do we see right here? that people who have seen a miracle still refuse to believe. They're unable to believe because their hearts are hard, and apart from the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, apart from the eye-opening work of the Holy Spirit, even miracles will not make people believe. In verse 16, they, they, they say, we cannot deny it. What an emphatic statement. We cannot deny what's happened yet they're so blinded by their unbelief. And in essence, what they're saying is, it is better, they think it would be better that no more crippled people, blinded people, 
deaf people or any other physical ailment should be healed. It's better to shut these guys down. And that's exactly what their plan is. In verse 18, they tell Peter and John not to speak or to teach at all in this name. Again, notice their choice of words. They won't even say the name of Jesus. They say this name. Don't don't preach or teach in this name. And instead of bowing to the threat, look in verse 19 of how Peter and John respond. They aren't disrespectful, but they, they kind of flip the moral imperative upside down. These are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. These aren't the civil leaders. Where should religious leaders find their authority? From God, right? And so what do they say? Well, we'll leave it up to you if we should listen to you or listen to God. But we cannot help but speak of that which we have seen and heard. The Holy Spirit gives them power and wisdom and boldness to speak the truth, to speak it clearly. But this is not a story to magnify these two human examples. Like, Peter and John are who we need to be like. If we were just more bold like Peter and John. No, this is a story, as all stories in Scripture are, purpose to magnify Christ. Christ sent His Spirit to fill these men, as He promised. Christ healed the lame man. He did the work. Christ is equally doing the speaking now through Peter and John by filling his servants with his spirit. See, you and I don't need moral examples. We need Christ. We need to look to him, to trust in him, that when we're threatened or we face opposition, it's not a matter of us figuring it all out. It's about us coming to the one who has figured it all out and can do all. We need to come to Christ. And then notice where all of this ends in verse 21. All the witnesses in Jerusalem, everyone who's come, believers and unbelievers, now are praising God because of what they have seen. The reason for the signs, the reason for the miracles, is the reason for for, for bold gospel proclamation, all that's happening is always to magnify Christ. And... Of course, this speaks a lot into this whole issue of celebrity in the modern church. Particular, well, it's, it's everywhere in the world now. This whole idea of celebrity, and, and it's a rabbit trail we won't go down, but the point of the gospel is never to make celebrities. The point of the gospel is to magnify Jesus. To lead people to Him, to give glory to God. Okay, and then what happens? They leave. They're told not to, to, to worry. Do they, they run? Do they go into hiding? Look at verses 23 to 31. No, the response to this bold stand is now a request for more boldness. They go to the other believers. They give the report. And in a sense, they are emboldened to ask for more boldness. In verse 31, we read that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. God's kingdom is moving in and through the lives of his people, ruling in our hearts and lives, so that as he gives us boldness, the response should be even more greater that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we should function. Not as if we've done something for God and we should get a a spiritual pat on the back. But we should look for ways to say, Lord, you work in and through our lives right here in Vero Beach and in this community to be bold witnesses for the gospel. Give us words to speak. Give us responses that are bold but wise and Christ-centered and God-exalting just like 
Peter and John received. And then they pray together, the group does. We don't know specifically who prayed, but they prayed in one voice, uh, Sovereign Lord. And as they address the Sovereign Lord who has just ruled and reigned over this, this situation that they have seen unfold, they go back to Psalm 2, a Messianic psalm, and they affirm here that Jesus is the Messiah. And notice here there is this parallel between Psalm 2 and then Acts 4.27 that follows that, that, that Luke lays out for us. The nations rage in Psalm 2 and in 4.27 the people gathered together against Jesus. In Psalm the people's plot in vain and in Acts both Gentiles and Jews conspired together. In Psalm the kings and the rulers in Acts a specific king and ruler Herod and Pontius Pilate are listed. Of the earth in the city, the Lord, your holy servant Jesus, His anointed one, whom you anointed. Luke shows that this parallel is what is happening is fulfilling what the psalm pointed to, that Jesus is the Messiah. So the early church asks now for more boldness, for more signs, for more wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They're not these kind of people that are looking to be sign workers or wonder workers or sign workers or, or people that are to do supernatural things. They recognize it's God who does this on his own. His, it's his own prerogative where and when he wants to do this. But they pray for more, recognizing it's not their power but his power and that Jesus is continuing to reign through his people. And finally, God graciously affirms their prayer. His spirit fills them all. There's an earthquake And you kind of start to see some resemblance of Pentecost, don't you? There's some parallel there as well. The Holy Spirit coming in response to prayer. uh, The the proclaiming of the Lord Lord, um, uh, in terms of the gospel with boldness. We see that happen in both places. The Spirit filling everyone in both places. Note that God isn't doing these things simply to show off. He's not doing it simply to, to give them courage or to encourage the people. There is a mission behind everything that He is doing. His church is on the move. That they would continue to speak the word of God with boldness. God's kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. It's not moving forward with swords and spears and conquering lands by political means or by means of war, what we otherwise typically see. It's a kingdom that's moving forward by His word. This is why... We send out missionaries. This is why we proclaim the word week in and week out here. It is by his word that he moves his kingdom forward. The religious leaders couldn't stop the word. Imprisonment wouldn't stop the kingdom expansion. Nothing would stop God's plan for moving forward. Even though from a human perspective, this group of guys really should have been easily shut down. I mean, if you compare the disciples, this ragtag group of guys who were common folk, untrained, no pedigree, no, I mean, no financial, no wealth, no, nothing. And then you had the high priestly family, right? The whole family is there and all their power. And the Sadducees and the priests and the captain of the guard, the police force, they're all showing up. I mean, these guys should have been shut down easily, like yesterday. And that's not at all what we see happen. And then the result is a bold community, 
A bold stand, a request for boldness, and a bold community, verses 32 to 37. We actually won't go all the way to 37. Uh, Barnabas, we're going to say for next week, and we're going to weave that into the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But look at these final words in the chapter. This is a bold community of believers. Uh, Luke's used this word that translates bold in our text. You've seen it as we've read through it this morning. Even though he doesn't use the specific word, he, he is certainly describing a bold community. Look in verse 32. We see there of one heart and soul. That Verse 33, that grace, great grace was upon them all. We see that they had everything in common. In verse 33, there wasn't a needy person among them. And then finally, that the apostles were teaching them with great power. This is a bold community of faith. Now, I don't know if it's true for you, um, but my tendency when I, I come to this section as with the previous section that dealt with this idea is I miss all that stuff and I just look at they had everything in common and they were uh, sharing and no one had needs and it sounds like communism. And I think that if your heart goes in that direction, and I think there's two extremes that we can tend to go to with this, we can either say, um, can we address that because uh, Christians aren't to be communists? Or you know, maybe you go to the other extreme and say, see, we should all be communists. The Bible says that we should right there. Uh, let me encourage you to say, uh, stop, and look at why your heart would go to either extreme. Because that's what I have to do in my own heart. Why is it that I am so concerned about stuff? I think, I think I'm probably not the only one that has this concern, that I'm so concerned about stuff. You know, am I being stingy with my things? Am I not willing to be generous with my things? Or do I go to the other extreme and expect People, do I have a sense of entitlement? Um, could I willingly give and share what I have? Or do I covet other people's belongings? And let's use this opportunity to look at our own hearts and ask ourselves, what's going on inside? But, let me say, what's happening here is not communism. There's personal ownership. Uh, it's not under compulsion. Um, you know, things that we would, I'm not going to give a lesson on communism, but things that we would know to be true about communism are not true about the early church. Uh, people were, were, were selling what they had as they were led. They were giving of what they had as they were led. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And a cheerful giver is not a giver under compulsion. You see, the motivation for these early believers to share all that they had wasn't a law. No one had come in and said it's a law, but it was rather love. They were being motivated by love. They were awash in this amazing grace that had been shown to them in the salvation that Jesus had just accomplished for them. And they, in this amazing grace, were demonstrating the love that had been given to them by God, and they were demonstrating that love to one another. It shows up first in the household of faith. I mean, if we cannot love each other, then we really have no business going out to the, to the world trying to show love because we become hypocrites. It starts first in the household of faith. And the motivation are things like, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or in Hebrews, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Our motivation and the motivation of this bold community is love. And what results? 
There's not a needy person among them. What an incredible thought that here, I mean, what a testimony to the surrounding world. There wasn't a needy person among them. I think this is a goal that we could actually have, that there wouldn't be a needy person among them, that we are aware of the needs of others. And here, I'm not just talking about financial needs. I'm talking about all of our needs, that we are connected and communicating and sharing in our lives together in such a way that we're aware of the needs of others and we're looking for ways that God has enabled us to meet other people's needs. Motivated by love. And I can say that in my short time here, I've already seen that among you. I have, and I'm not just talking about the generosity that you guys have shown us and the love that you've shown us, for which we're deeply grateful. I'm talking about things that I've seen, and that means that there's lots of things that I haven't seen that you guys are doing for each other. So let's keep this up, because this becomes a testimony, just like it was among this community in Acts. It also becomes a testimony to the dying world around us. But I want us to remember that this is not just a moral lesson. This is not just a moral goal or a moral objective that we set before ourselves, but this is rooted and motivated in the gospel. I want Christ the King to be a church that gladly and boldly proclaims the good news that Jesus came to save sinners and gladly and boldly lives out that faith in word and in deed. This gospel, the gospel of Jesus, is good news that others need to hear and need to see in practice. Because the gospel has not only changed our lives at the point of salvation, the gospel is changing our lives day in and day out. And we need to live that out before the world to see. See, the gospel is a lavish gift, and this is why we're able to be lavish in our gifts. The gospel is a lavish gift to us, an undeserved, unmerited gift that we can't even calculate. And it should motivate us to be lavish with our lives in sharing what we have and opening our homes to one another and inviting people into our lives and not only being giving, but in allowing people to help us when we have needs. That takes grace. It takes grace. And of course, the lavishness that we see in the gospel is represented so clearly in this table that we come to now. We come to celebrate this lavish gift that the king of the universe would come and put on flesh, that he would give up his riches that were duly his and become poor so that we who were poor might become rich. He took his own life and laid it down willingly so that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins could be made alive with him. And that's what we come and celebrate now in this table. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the boldness that you give us through your Spirit. It's a boldness that we can't take credit for, but it's a boldness that as we see, we can't help but glorify you. Whether it's in the lives of the early church that we read about in Acts, and we thank you and give you glory for that, but also in the life of Christ the King. We thank you and give you glory for the boldness of love and faith in Christ and how it manifests itself not only in word, but in deed. And I pray that that would continue that our hearts would be continually changed by the power of the gospel to live lives that are lavishly giving of all that we have, not just our physical resources, but even ourselves, that we would willingly lay down our lives, our wants, our interests, our uh, desires for the needs of others, and that it would start first here in the household of faith, that that would become a testimony to the world around us as we live the gospel out. 
And Lord, as we come to your table this morning, I pray that the lavishness of your work, Jesus, that you did in the death that you paid on the cross and in your resurrection, that the lavishness of this gift would overwhelm us. I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit today, would work in and through this to minister to us, to feed us, to nourish us. Lord, that we would give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.